I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I'm Hoy, your co-host, and with me as always is that snake, Jeff Goad. I was going to make a snake noise, but I'm not quite sure what that's like. It's like... No, that's uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's easier than making a spider noise. Indeed, indeed. And this week, as always, uh, we have a special guest, and it is Jason Ray Carney, professor of popular literature at Christopher Newport University, editor of the recent Savage Scrolls, uh, Sword and Sorcery anthology, and co-editor of the Dark Man Journal of Robert E. Howard Studies. Hello, Jason. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Right. And this week we are reading. Uh, Fritz Leiber's The Big Time. Uh, but before we get into that, Jason, can you tell us a little bit about your secret origin in terms of how you got into fantastic literature and then also into gaming, if you have a gaming background? Sure. My grandmother, she uh, bought me a copy of the board game uh, Hero Quest. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you guys... I, so I was... Uh, completely obsessed with that game i would think i was eight years old when she bought it for me and i all i knew what to do was to like play with the toys wait um, jason do you mind if i ask how old you are i'm 37 okay i'm 40 so yes we're we're, we're in the same age range because mm-hmm. i also had a hero quest set and i would like hold my friends captive and like force them to like <laughs> go through like the same scenarios over and over again i was obsessed with that game <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> yeah yeah well, I, um, it, my, my, gra- my grandmother said that, uh, you know, the big barbarian on the cover, uh, uh, she told me that that was Conan the Barbarian. And, uh, so, <laughs> oh, so she knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I uh, just, uh, you know, people growing up, it was kind of like, you know how you get like cast in the role of, oh, he's into, uh, you know, dragons or whatever. Like you're told that you're, you're into something. And then my family just kind of, they would always buy me fantasy novels and D&D books and this and that. And so. Um, it was awesome. So that's mm-hmm. not much of an origin story, but that's it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a- and um, what of the literature really sort of grabbed you re- relatively early on in terms of, I mean, you're known for, you know, sword and sorcery, but were you reading also sort of more high fantasy as well at the same time and all that other stuff as much? Well, it's weird because um, academically, I wasn't much into fantasy. Um, I, I, I wrote my uh, uh, senior thesis on Orwell. And then I wrote my um, master's thesis on um, Steinbeck. And so I was like, really into like, you know, the between the wars um, kind of working class writers. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was doing my PhD, I was like, well, I'll stick with that. And then uh, I was, you know, really into Conan. I'm like, maybe I could do a dissertation on pulp magazines. And um, my uh, dissertation advisor was like, I don't know. That's, I don't know if that's literary enough. And um, long story short, there was this emerging academic community of writers who were um, studying pulp magazines and it's still kind of emerging. It never really got off the ground, Mm -hmm. but like, I was like, well, this book just came out called recovering modernism. And it's actually about um, pulp magazines and it's written by like a legitimate scholar. And, you know, they kind of begrudgingly signed off on it. So my, my two worlds collided uh, Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. pulp magazines, fantasy and uh, 
Because my right. my academic work was on on weird tales, so right, right, and and when we're using modernism in the in the, the academic sense of the word, uh, when we're talking about it, and and the title of uh, I think the title of your piece is ephemerality of the ordinary. Is that right? Is that your 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 thesis? Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, now what does that what does that mean? Ephemerality of the ordinary. I'm really fascinated by that. Well, it's uh, it's basically the idea that um, in the between the wars period. I think a lot of writers uh, start to, uh, um, it, you know, there's a new experience of, uh, you know, not only are things changing, like in modernity, it's like, oh, well, there's all these new technologies. Um, you know, we now have radio, we now have light bulbs, that sort of thing. But I think uh, with, with the Weird Tales writers, it's all about how they they were concerned about the um, acceleration of the pace of change. So like, they're like, this. it's all about being disoriented by mm -hmm. the, the, the pace of change. Like the Lovecraftian protagonist who's like, going crazy um i the, the way i talk about it in my book is that it's like a reaction uh to to um historical change accelerating almost mm -hmm. exponentially right it's like uh, literally being lost in space and time you know right so, right and so i mean uh obviously someone like lovecraft is sometimes pitched as a reactionary um yes and, and howard is sort of maybe of two worlds on uh, one hand is is very backwards looking but he was also younger than lovecraft and maybe also sort of more on the frontier and more energetic in that way. Yeah. And today we're talking about Liber, who maybe is that perfect bridge figure, right? Because he was actually mentored by Lovecraft, but also is incredibly modern in a lot of ways, an urban uh, modernist uh, figure. So I think we can dive into that after we talk about which editions we're looking at. So, Well, and actually, before we move into the other editions, I would love to pick Jason's brain on something else. Sure. So, you know, you're somebody who has gotten really into the kind of academia of pulp fiction. And kind of the, the pulp era of writing has also had a bit of a resurgence amongst the right wing, specifically because they see it as an era of fiction that's like pre quote unquote message fiction. And like they they like that men could be men and we didn't have to worry about, you know, thinking about things like racism and misogyny and colonialism. I'm curious, like, have you encountered much of that in kind of your exploration of that community? Yeah. Um, pulp fiction, uh, between the wars, pulp fiction, it's, uh, it's, it's a literature about, uh, the, um, the end of an order. I use the term ordinary, but it's the end of a specific order. Mm -hmm. And, um, in my book, I look at three, uh, cis white males, and um, I talk about at the end of in the conclusion of my book uh, that there's this interwar cultural logic at play where there is a world of like European uh, hegemony, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, right? T.S. Eliot's uh, poem is all about how the world is a complete um, and utter, uh, it's a wasteland. But I think that's just the perspective of a white male looking at the the end of their order, right? From 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 some people's perspective, it's not a wasteland. It's actually the beginning of something new, right? And so, like, I I um I I I think a lot of what's going on in Lovecraft and and, and Howard and uh, Clark Ashton Smith is a uh, um it's an aesthetic of fear of change. It's a literature that it, it's actually pretty interesting because I mean, horrible people could make amazing art, right? Ezra Pound, who's a fascist. He's one of the greatest poets of all time, but 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 a lot of his poetry is about how art should be completely separated from the world and 
you know, it should it should be this like alienating uh, edifice. Absolutely. My my favorite film is made by a child rapist. Oh, God. I, Rosemary's Baby is absolutely my favorite film. And right. Roman Polanski is absolutely a child rapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's that's, uh, you know, I um, Lovecraft is probably one of the most despicable human beings that I've ever encountered in writing. So at the same time, uh, his his um, his work about, uh, you know, Cthulhu rising from the Pacific Ocean. I mean, that was just a few years before the mushroom cloud was rising over uh, Japan, you know? Right, so like, right. there's something there about this fear of, of modernity. And I, I, and I think there's, even today it persists, you know, fear of, fear of, you know, difference in all forms. Um, you know, uh, you can, you can make art out of it and I, I, I for right. good or ill. Fearing um, changes of gender roles, gender concept of gender, even that are, 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 are previous notions of gender of of uh political you know top dogs and you know uprising rising figures um i'm kind of interested though because you mentioned this because in a way howard lovecraft and clark ash and smith while they're responding to this they were also quite sheltered in their own ways and they weren't like right there in the middle of like you know the people of europe or even the rest of the world had just actually literally experienced the world war on their own home in their own home, home, home countries whereas you know howard and you know Clark Ashton Smith's all the way out in California, Howard's in, you know, rural Texas, you know, Lovecraft's in Providence. So they're seeing this or they're feeling this wave, but in, their, in a way they're not in a position to be as affected, right? Or at least not directly, you know? It's interesting because um, with uh, Howard, uh, he did experience modernity in the form of an oil boom. Right. So he's living in cross plains and it's just complete and utter chaos for a couple of years and then it goes away. Uh, and there was, you know, you know, if you can imagine like the worst kind of like exploitation of a community, like, you know, these oil, uh, oil baron is the right word, but these oil companies come in, they set up shop and then they just, for like five years, you have prostitutes and, um, you know, people, you know, pandering to the roughnecks and, you know, saloons, and then it's just all gone. Right. right. And that, and that, uh, and then with Lovecraft, he was living in, um, uh, you know, Providence in on college hill have you guys been to providence before yes it's like the colonial america on college hill and then if you look across lovecraft i like to imagine this fearful guy like looking across you know the river and seeing federal hill which was that was where all the italians and the syrians and the and the jewish immigrants and the modern architecture was there so you see lovecraft is encountering modernity in that way and then with clark ashton smith he lived in rural, um, you know, California, but he also had friend, friends who were like Bohemians. And um, uh, I believe it was, uh, I think it was uh, San Francisco. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. Why, why yeah. couldn't I remember that? San yeah. Francisco. He like, you know, did a couple of trips to visit the the, the Bohemians and um, in, in San Francisco. And I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, that was his encounter with, with I'm, I'm being, uh, you know, kind of generalizing here, but, but they had, they had, really distorted views of what modernity was mm-hmm. and they were cloistered and it was like you know and so it's interesting today because we'll be reading Liber, who was uh again a bridge figure and an almost contemporary of theirs right i mm-hmm. uh, knew a lot of them but was also deeply immersed in modernity right he was in new york in chicago in san francisco and all these places yep. while this is all happening and he's from a theatrical family uh so bohemians right there by definition totally and to see what his responses to that are yeah. Yeah. So that'll, that'll be fun to explore here. Yeah. So um, which, which text are we working with today? Jason, which version are you working with? 
I have this uh, Ace uh, Double Edition. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Do we know who that author, who that cover artist is? I, I, I think that's Ed M. Schroeder. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. What, what's it a double with? Uh, it's doubled with um, The Mind Spider and Other Stories. Cool. Um, I have not read that. Uh, there's some good stories in there. I don't. I haven't read that copy, but there's some more of the uh, Change War stories are in there that we were talking about, Jeff, during the book club. So, mm-hmm. and Jeff, what do you co- what are you working with? I've got this uh, 1967 Ace paperback uh, with this collage on the cover done by Hoot von Zitzowitz. <laughs> <laughs> which if that's not the name of a character from the big time, then right. I don't know what is. Like, <laughs> I think that's gotta be like some hippie, uh, hippie, uh, pseudonym, for, you know, probably it's like some legit, uh, <laughs> legit, uh, uh, you know, graphic designer. And then he was slumming it in same in you know, sci-fi. <laughs> His real name was John Smith. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, oh. I actually read the scans of the uh, novella as they were published in Galaxy Magazine uh, because I wanted to see the... Um, well, look at you. The, the illo. So it's on, it's on archive. <laughs> it's on archive.org. So it's no big, no, it's not a big deal. I'm just mentioning it because there was some... Um, some illos by um, whom I think about that. It's not Hans Bach, the other one. Um, Virgil Finlay. Virgil Finlay, right? So that was the, that was my main reason for it. But I also went back and read my uh, from the Library of America hardcover uh, American science fiction series. Oh, nice! Um, so there's five novels in here, of which the last one is the big time, and this is the American science fiction 1956 to 1958. <laughs> um, and so. for the record, if you're listening to the show and you're like, "What would be a good present to give Jeff?" The answer to that would be some original Virg- Virgil Finlay art. Yeah, I would indeed. love some of that. So yeah. if you have any of that lying around by all and you don't and you feel like you just need to get rid of it and right. show um, a podcaster that you enjoy how much you appreciate <laughs> their work, by all means, send me your, your original Virg- Virgil Finlay work. Right. If there's some that don't quite make the cut, you can send them to me. I'll, I'll evaluate them for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Hoy. I appreciate that. <laughs> so I guess we can take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day and then go into the library. Um, I'll start by saying this book did not seem to have an overabundance of pomposity. Uh, <laughs> is that a word or did I just make that up? <laughs> I think it's Works a word. Yep. <laughs> I like it. Um, but the word that I ended up going with was... Anachronism. Anachronism. Um, first off, as kind of an ode to the Society of Creative Anachronisms, which are kind of a um, a linchpin in nerdum. Um, but also it just feels like it's a very the big time kind of word. And most of us already know what anachronism means, but in case you don't, an anachronism is a noun. It's a thing belonging to or appropriate to a period other than in which it exists, especially a thing that is conspicuously old-fashioned. And we find the word anachronism on page 61, where it says, dwell for a bit on the current flurry of stupid slugging and panicking, a panicky anachronism. When um, when we all know that anachronism is what gets the change winds out of control. So that is our word for the day. It's a good one. Yeah. Hoy, did you encounter anything that you thought was worth mentioning or not really? Uh, I mean, there was a lot of sort of like period slang that was sort of deliberately pushed to the front here, but uh, yeah. not a word that uh, jumps to my mind at the moment, you know. So, yeah, with that in mind, Jason, what did you think of the big time? What were your reactions? Oh, it's a uh, very interesting um, new wave science fiction it's it's intriguing for its uh, uh, I, I, I something that I thought was really interesting was um, the way that uh, there was a lot of like non English 
in, in, included. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have a lot to say about it, but I don't want to like hold forth on it. <laughs> what do you guys think of it? My initial reaction when I tried to read this last year was to sort of slide off of it, even though it was kind of short, because uh, Greta Forzane is, she's deliberately made to be sort of very glib and, and, and sort of apparently shallow. Um, and so I slid off it the first time, but then this time I just dove right in and, it, you know, it's just really sort of developed a momentum of its own. And then once I realized it was really meant to be incredibly theatrical, that this is basically a, a, a play in the round, right? This is, you know, it's in the form of a novel, but it's really a play in sort of like a bare uh, modernist set. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, I, I can s- absolutely picture that. Yeah. For me, I would say um, I did not enjoy the act of reading this book. I found it was um, it was hard for me to follow. It was hard for me to give a crap about any of the characters while I was reading it. But I would also say that I found a lot of what was happening underneath the surface of the novel incredibly fascinating. So while I may not have enjoyed reading it, I am really glad to have read it. And like Hoy, I feel like I might get a lot more out of a second reading of it. But frankly, I have no desire to do that right now. Uh, <laughs> maybe at some point in the future, I will have my my second reading where I get to enjoy it more. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff happening underneath the surface of this. Um, you know, we've got um, Greta's way of kind of dealing with the horror of the both her past and the world she's presently in with kind of her humor and with her deflection. We also have this kind of stream of cosmic horror happening beneath the surface because everybody here is fighting for a war they don't understand and their leaders are people who they also don't even understand. And as a result of this war, their world is now occupied by Nazis and the things that they hold sacred and care about could easily be demolished tomorrow. And it doesn't matter as long as it serves the ultimate goal of this war they don't understand. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of there there. Yeah, as a as a symptom of like the mind of uh, a post-war American, it's really intriguing. It's mm-hmm. like like I mean, we grew up. Uh, you know, with the rise of, you know, social media and smartphones, and maybe we can connect to Lieber's experience in this way. Lieber, Lieber, I'm going to make that mistake the whole time, but (laughs) Lieber. But like he was born in 1910 and he died in 1992. Think about all of the, you know, apocal changes, technological changes, cultural changes, like the world was completely in flux. And I, I, I see this like he, he wrote this at the middle of his career. Um, it's 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 really fascinating. I, I agree with you that it wasn't enjoyable. But as a literary scholar, I hate to say it, it's it's kind of completely inhuman. But like my enjoy the extent to which I enjoy or or not a work of whatever I'm reading is often not part of how I engage with the stuff anymore. Right. Like sure. I, I read them as documents rather than as that's not completely true. So, I mean, I, if I think about it, I can be like, I like, but if I'm honest, this, this isn't the most pleasurable read. It's not something I would take to the beach, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It is kind of curious because this one, I guess a Hugo, right. Um, and so yes. obviously it was considered an incredibly notable uh, work of that year, but it is not one that is frequently brought up when people mention like the Hugo winners list or, you know, my favorite library. Or so I think that the, probably a lot of people have this uh, a similar reaction of like, um, you know, people recognize at the time that it was important. It was saying something important, even in a sort of very short and sort of um, seemingly um, uh, light way. 
but that it somehow is not one that people have a strong emotional connection to the way that a lot of sort of others, you know, works that have, you know, people continue to cite to this day. Well, and part of that may have to do with like, when we look at Fafford and the Grey Mouser, for example, that's really kind of considered to be like one of like the pinnacle achievements of, um, of sword and sorcery writing. But when we look at like time travel science fiction, when people make the list of the most notable uh, works, works, works there, you're not really going to see Fritz Leiber's the big time often mentioned in that. So perhaps it's that you know this is this is part of a genre that really continued to peak post this 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 book coming out. Absolutely, like this reminded me a lot of Harlan Ellison's uh, "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream." Mm. Um, in the same way that there's like this sinister but absent uh, kind of super intelligence Mm -hmm. that uh, has victimized uh, the humans. The humans are just trying to like maintain their humanity. Like this is a recuperation station. It's really, it's quite sad if you think about it. It's like Mm -hmm. they're in the midst of this war and they're just trying to like recover to keep fighting. Right, right. Um, But I agree like Harlan Ellison does this better. Philip K. Dick does this better. No offense, I love uh, Liber, but um, if I'm going to read New Age science fiction, um, you know, I think the master is Philip K. Dick, but hmm. um, and then also this is a story where we have you know like Nazis hanging out with like people from ancient Egypt or whatever, and it's like I have not yet read the Riverworld books, but I also my understanding is that that's also kind of a similar thing where you have people from all different times of uh, human history together, and my understanding is that it does it incredibly successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the one one level, I think. I think you're right. I think that this is um, part of a larger, <laughs> you know, th- they keep on using the word stream uh, in this book, but this is part of a much larger stream where it's so, so, uh, you know, the rock doesn't stick as far out of the stream as the Fafford and Grey Mouse do, you know, works doing the sword and sorcery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's certainly an element. But on the other hand, when we're mentioning this, there's a lot going on, as you mentioned. And one major thing that I got away from this that is an understanding that maybe is not present in a lot of these other works is I think he understands an incredible amount about addictive behavior and PTSD. Yes. And, and Stockholm syndrome, for that matter, if, if we believe that Stockholm syndrome is an actual thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's some debate about that. But in particular, P- PTSD. And as far as I and to touch on that thing, you know, this is being a recuperation station and all that. Um, and as far as I know, library didn't serve. I'm sure he knew people who served. And, you know, and, and again, he would have been born, he would have remembered World War One as a thing that happened when he was a child and World War II happened very much when he was an adult. So he would have seen all of that. And as you said, the, the incredible change that happened in the 20th century. And again, being on the wave of modernity, but being in the wave at the same time, right? <laughs> right. I think there's some really interesting things going on there. And, and they, they, get, they get sort of, um, because Greta is designed uh, to be, um, she's very clever, but she's not particularly uh, deep, right? Or at least she plays herself that way. This is her monologue to herself. And I think she's avoiding a lot of things. She clearly has some form of PTSD. She is essentially, I mean, she's, she tosses off the sentence, but she's essentially the reason that the, all these people are in this time station, they get plucked out of the time stream, right? Before they die. She essentially was raped to death by Nazis, right? But her boyfriend is a Nazi, right? What does that mean, right? You know, yeah. and all these other characters uh, have equally traumatic, you know, origin stories, if you will, before they're brought into this, into this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's incredibly fascinating. And um, and so seemingly glib, but understandable now, because this is people who do not want to face the realities of their existence. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100 percent that there's a lot of um, 
a lot of PTSD and addiction subtext. And you, I think you did a really great job of specifically highlighting the PTSD side of that. Taking a look at maybe more of the addiction side of it, I think there's this great part on page 80 of my edition where it says, change is like a drug. I realized you get used to the facts never staying the same. And one picture of the past and future dissolving into another, maybe not very different, but still different. And your mind being constantly goosed by strange moods and notions, like nightclub lights of shifting color with weird shadows shifting, um, uh, with weird shadows between shining right on your brain. And then she goes on to say, the facts you think from and feel from are exactly the same when you go back to them. And boy, that's rough, as I found out now. So like here she is talking about how like, you can like, you know, basically like you can go out and you can get as drunk as you want or as high as you want. But in the end, when you come back from this and you come back down, you're still you. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. So there's some really interesting stuff that he's talking about there as well. And then there's also a um, a kind of uh, glib comment about um, on page 89. It says drinking yourself to death is not nearly as easy as it sounds. So it's like. Clearly, Liber knows what he's talking about and is exploring some of kind of what it means to be an addict with the change winds. Mm -hmm. Hmm. It's so dark and it's uh, it is about trauma. And I'm thinking of uh, one of the ways that I uh, understand trauma is um, the inability to narrate your experience. Mm. It kind of echoes in the form of this novel, which it's not a conventional narrative. I mean, Liber is not a conventional writer. You know, he, he's, he's very uh, scattered and kind of, uh, you know, um, syntactically complex. And but like this, this does sometimes read like a stream of consciousness sort of novel. And I feel yeah. like it's that, um, uh, you know, some, somebody struggling, trying to come to sense with their trauma uh, is is um is, is mirrored in the form of the of the novel and we do know that liber had substance abuse problems in his life mm-hmm. at, at various points and that he also was um this one i think was a, also a written after like a three-year bout of uh, writer's block um which is kind of interesting um i know that there's also a current uh there's two tensions within sort of literary crit theories one is just to look at the text purely at the text and and exclude uh you know biographical historiographical information um, because the text has to stand on its own. And then there's the other current, which is like, you know, no, all this stuff informs the, the, the literature and we have to look at all of that. I can see, I'm making an educated guess that you lean more to the latter than the former, but I know that you still have to accommodate the former um, when, when you're discussing stuff. So what, what is, um, you know, your thoughts on that? Oh gosh, I'll go down the rabbit hole of the history of criticism. Cause like now we're in this period in uh, literary criticism. I mean, it's it's like five people. Let's not get a you know um, get a, my my head's not too big. You know, the history of literary criticism is like a small conversation. But there are um, people who are uh, it's called uh, um, the new formalism, where people are less interested in how uh, works of literature express a historical moment and more how they are deviating from um, reality. Like in this, what 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 I think is really interesting about this this um, uh, you know. Um, real life, uh, you know, uh, historical events happen in a linear way, one after the other. But in this novel, you know, things are happening at the same time. You know, you have a, like, there's just, like, I, I still don't understand how time, like the big time and the and the small time, like how that works formally. Like, that's just right. so mm-hmm. strange. 
It's just disorienting. Right. But it's also, it, it, I think it's intriguing that like it, after the war, most Americans were disoriented, mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. the, the whole, and it's all like part of the same, you know, I mean, you have the personal, which is the substance abuse. And then you have the, you know, uh, social and cultural, which is uh, we, the, 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 the horror of, of uh, what, what historians call the age of catastrophe, you know, and that's, that's, it's basically like, um, I'm not even sure. I don't remember what question I was answering. <laughs> well, I, I guess the no, no. I think you uh, is a big topic, but the idea yeah. of of um, whether sort of real, ex, you know, events ex, events and issues external to the text should be incorporated into our reading of the text, or whether you know we have to just look at the text and not have any like, oh, who cares what Liber, you know, life was like or what he thought or whatever. You just have to look at the text. Um, and I know that's simplifying sort of the the the, the divisions within sort of. Um, you know, critical theory, but. Well, and I'd also like maybe to add to that question too, is do you feel like one of those tactics has more academic value than the other or are they, or do they just have a different value? It, it, it's here, here's the nutshell story in the um, 1970s. You had uh, what's called, um, you know, post-structuralism where they, they were all about like language. They want to do linguistic analysis and let's not talk about history because we're not historians, you know? So you mm -hmm. have like, Derrida was a big figure. And then in the, uh, you know, you had this guy, Stephen Greenblatt, who shows up in the 1980s and he's, he's, he, he creates a thing called historicism, technically new historicism. And he's like, we have been completely doing a disservice to literature. We have been uh, separating it from its historical moment. And so now we need to do like thick description of the historical moment where, where the work emerged. Right. So then you get, but then you get this problem where like, in the 80s and 90s, you have um, literary critics who are like moonlighting as historians. They're not doing it very well. And then in the um, in the 2000s, uh, you um, you have this now what's going on, which is called the aesthetic turn, which, you know, when I was in graduate schools, a lot of people were like, you know, trying to like get away from uh, just doing history. Right. Because our friends down the hallway in the history department, they know a lot more, for example, about uh, interwar um, politics. Right. So mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I guess to, there's there's a, there's a synthesis that's trying to happen right now between the whole. Let's just look at language, which is not, you know, like a, a linguistic artifact that's separated from history versus, you know, no, we have to completely talk about society, history, um, culture, all that stuff. It's context. Mm -hmm. right? There's like a synthesis that's trying to happen right now. Right, right. Um, so I, 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 I would not venture uh, to, to say one is more valuable than the other. I think the lesson we learned is that you can't lean too far either way. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think Weiber is probably fairly rich in this because of the appendix and authors. I think he is probably one of the people who is very much more conscious. I mean, you know, I'm not den denigrating the bulk of these writers, but he's up there with like Vance or, mm -hmm. or Clark Ash and Smith in his understanding of language, right? Mm -hmm. In the way that maybe some of the other people who are incredible writers, but are, are more just like workmanlike in terms of the way of their, how their approach to the use of language. Um, so I think if we were, again, even taking a formalist bent on it, I think that Libra would still be, would, uh, would still be rewarding in a way that maybe some of the other appendix authors might not be. I, I definitely think that Libra has artistic ambition. Mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of the appendix and authors are pulp writers and they're just, they're, they're entertainers. And like, they even wear as like a badge of honor that like, we don't have artistic ambition. I think Libra, like, um, he's, he's, he's very much, uh, I mean, he's not being, I don't think I, I have to look into the biography, but I don't think he's like pretentious or anything, but like, he definitely does have ambition, you know, to create works of, of literary art. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's different than like Howard who Howard creates artistic, I mean, literary art, 
but he often does it on accident, right? Like the intensity of his enterprise. Oh my gosh, this Conan story is a, is badass. But it wasn't like he set out like to be this like I'm going to be this great fantasy writer. I think it just you know uh, the, a lot of times pulp writers end up becoming artists on accident. I don't mm-hmm. think that's the case with Liber. I think that he came from a artful family and mm-hmm. you know he knew he read a lot. And, right, right. And then on top of that, I don't really know how much his seminary training affects things too, but there's that that level of it too. So, Yeah. Well, this is probably a good time for us to start moving the conversation more in a gaming direction. Jason, first off, I'm curious, have you done uh, much or any gaming that wasn't specifically fantasy? I played a lot of Shadowrun. Okay. Sure. Vampire of the Masquerade. Sure. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, I played a lot of Vampire of the Masquerade. I was kind of a a goth in high school. So. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Same here. Same here. Um, so I'm curious if you were going to um, play in a big, in, in a, the big time style game, is there a character from this book you'd want to play? Or is there a type of character you would want to bring into this universe to play yourself? That's a good question. Well, while you're thinking about that, Hoy, do you have an answer? Character I would want to play or character I would want to bring into my gaming universe. Either one you'd want to play or one that you'd want to bring into this universe to play. Uh, Into this universe to play. Well, I mean, obviously, since it involves all time and space, then, um, you know, we can bring that in and bring different attitudes that we are maybe not aware of. Um, So I was intrigued by the Cretan Minoan woman, and I wish that we'd seen a little bit more of her. And what's interesting is she spoke in free verse, right? Again, we're talking about literary ambitions, right? All of her Mm. lines are in free verse. Right. Mm. And so that indicates something about the way she thinks. And then we have the other character who's from Elizabethan England and he's sort of speaking sort of, you know, sort of more body Elizabethan, uh, not, you know, perfect Shakespearean, but sort of body Elizabethan English. I wouldn't want to play Eric. He's such a total bastard, but he's such a memorable character <laughs> that, you know, I mean, he's like a bastard. He knows he's a bastard. He's not even like I'm a hero, you know, like a hero in my own mind. Right. <laughs> right. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. He, he's he's very openly racist, homophobic, misogynist. He's yeah. a Nazi who waxes poetically about um, Gehring's experiments. And yeah. Right. Right. Um, so there's something about having a character who just so clearly knows themselves, or at least pretends to. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's that's fascinating. Um, but you know, uh, bringing into my uh, and bringing into this game universe, I don't know. Uh, I'll throw that back at you. So, <laughs> or, <laughs> Jason, or did you did you come yeah, up with an answer? A healer, sure. Okay, because I mean, it this uh, ostensibly takes place in in a, in a house of healing, mm-hmm. and you know, everybody shows up with with. Um, some sort of like wound there are negative hit points right yeah. they've been um so yeah i would say a healer right and doc is drunk the whole time right the, the person is nominally the doctor right so <laughs> so he's not even able to do anything for mm-hmm. yeah 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 <laughs> awesome i think it, i think it'd be fun to play kind of a dolly parton in the best little whorehouse in texas style madam mm-hmm. <laughs> a bard <laughs> yeah sure. exactly sure sure <laughs> Um, Sorry to use D and D tropes, but right, right. <laughs> no, no, please. Um, and one of the people in the reading uh, reading group was mentioning, and this was a pr- fairly deep cut. He said that the doc doc was actually Maxim Gorky, uh, <laughs> and I, which I did not know, but of course, Maxim Gorky is associated with you know socialist realism and modernism, so <laughs> and is a dramatist. So, um, <laughs> so that's like a, a very deep cut on Libra's part there. Um, well, I have a feeling there were a lot of deep cuts in here because there were definitely uh, occasional references that, like, I could tell were specifically references that I was not getting. Like at one point, somebody says um, somebody called was referred to as um, being their black Svengali to her trilby, 
And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what, what, what Black Svengali to your trilby means. Yeah, yeah. Do either of you? No. Uh, no, no. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, know what, I know what we generally mean by a Svengali figure, but not, sure, yeah, sure. But not specifically this. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of stuff going over my head there. Yeah, yeah. And um, also, if we did want to create a The Big Time Gaming Universe, at least Liber lays out some very clear time travel rules. Like, for example, you can't time travel through the time you time travel in when you time travel. <laughs> I'm not sure sense. what that means. <laughs> Can either of you explain that sentence to me? Because I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's intentionally overly complicated or not. I, I kept thinking of uh, the, um, the Chronicles of Amber reading this, like the uh-huh. way Shadow works, like that mm-hmm. they can't just like, you can't just go from Chicago to a crazy um, alien world, right? You have to, if you know those books, you have to yeah. like incrementally get yourself to this mm. crazy world. I feel like he mentions the, um, there's two types of, you, you like, you 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 take, the, the big time is almost like a the highway that you take to go to the small time, which is, um, I don't know if that, um, that that the 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 actual description that you just cited, I, I make no sense of it at all. But <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, it's just very yeah. I mean, there's like a couple understandings I have, it. and even then, I think the point is that the characters don't really understand, or that nobody really understands how time works. Right. Yeah. Um, that I guess one implication is that you basically can't travel through your own time stream, but you can remember all the things that didn't happen to you if something else changes your time stream. So people die, but then they remember multiple deaths because something else has changed their time stream. And so it's, it's compounding trauma, right, for these characters. Wait, so I'm sorry. So you can't travel through your own time stream. So I could not travel to my own past or my own future, but I could travel to somebody else's past or future? Is that's that what, what seems to be. That seems to be what, okay. one of the things that's happening. And, and it's a couple of times it's mentioned, like, you know, you get basically all these characters are enlisted in the war by getting yanked out of their time stream just before they die, right? And at some yeah. point they get put back into their time stream you know, just at the moment of their death, right? And so they get this whole extra lifetime, but knowing that they're still going to die their original death, however that may be. Some of them is horrible, sometimes natural, right? And Greta's case, particularly horrible, right? But if something else, and it, we, the other thing that they say is it's incredibly difficult to change time because they have to keep on like chipping away, chipping away to make any major changes, right? But yeah. the invention of the, the atomic bomb, whatever. But these little incremental changes still happen so that, if something changes your time stream and you're not there, but you'll remember that. So again, something changed Greta's death. And so there's that other woman who is um, the one who's in love with the British poet. She's, she's basically doomed to die of alcoholism. Lillian right? Foster. Lillian Foster. But she mm-hmm. remembers two or three different ways that she's going to die of alcoholism. Right. Yeah, she died once in New York in 29 and again in Nazi-occupied London in 55. Right. But, but you remember that as soon as that change has been made somewhere in the time stream. So like I said, you have this compounding trauma. It never gets better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, so that's that's kind of freaky. Um, yeah. And I think that this this way that he presents um, um, time travel as um, of it being very difficult to change the, 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 the course of time is actually, I think, if you are going to gamify time travel in some way, that's kind of a cool way to do it because then you don't get really kind of stuck in the, oh, no, this person spoke to that person and now the entire thing is thrown off. Like, it's the the the, the path of time really wants to go in a certain direction and it is really difficult to change that course. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because uh, this, this is so consistent with the idea of, like, you know, being drafted into to various, you know, if you were a Soviet 
you know, if you're living in Soviet Russia and you're drafted in the Red Army, if you're a young man in uh, Montana being drafted into, you know, the, the um, you know, uh, the European war, like this is kind of a trauma about getting swept up by history. Right. You know, individuals don't control history. Individuals get kind of swept up into history. Right. So I'm wondering, like, in a game, like, usually you're the main characters in a game. You're the protagonist. But, like, a true gamified version of this would be, like, you're irrelevant to the plot. The plot happens to you. Right. Like, mm. like things happen to you. Maybe that would be cool. Like, I don't know if it would be, like, an avant-garde game, but your your characters would never leave the tavern. Right. right. All the events would come to the tavern and they would keep happening to you over and over again, traumatizing right. you. Right, right. Um, which is why I think this game would be most suited to be played almost in a LARP format rather than a sort of tabletop format, right? Hmm. Because because a LARP usually has a unity of time and space in the way that a tabletop oh. game doesn't, right? And that's mm-hmm. one of the definitions of drama, right? Is unity of time and space, right? Well, that'd be cool. Right. Also with LARPing, you could do the historical, historical costuming in this right, novel exactly. is really important. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. And on top of that, like the, the, the kind of traditional conflicts that you get, definitely at least in fantasy, where a lot of it's played out with like magic or combat, you don't really have that in this. Like it all really is kind of dialogue driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're, you're dealing with these, and, you know, something maybe like an apocalypse world. I mean, if you want to do it more tabletop, maybe an apocalypse world flavored game or a fate flavored game, I think might better address this because it allows you to bring in not as be concerned with sort of like very concrete procedural rules, right? And it's more about interactions, right, that, that you have. You would have to have like uh, an hourglass as part of the game mechanic, right. not just dice, maybe some multiple hourglasses. Right. I don't know, like around the table, there are multiple sands. <laughs> right. You know, yeah, just like, to create that level of anxiety and not, yeah, not know what's happening. Like what, what, what are you ticking down to, right? And in this yeah. case, literally a nuclear bomb in this case. <laughs> totally. And maybe at the bottom of each sand timer, there's also like a random table that when that, when that sand timer, when that sand timer empties, you then roll on that random table to see like what effect that has on the time stream that you're currently in. Yeah. Because like that adds to that like sense of like, you have no control over the fact that the change winds keep blowing and who you were an hour ago might be different than who you're going to be an hour from now. Oh, and this is this is weird. You would record on your phone, you use your technology that we have today, and you could play back the session later in the game. So you get that kind of echoing, like time <laughs> is accumulating. Like, <laughs> like, uh, right. I, I'm not I'm, sure how that would you mechanically work, but somehow like past events have to show up again. Right, yeah. right. Right. I mean, there's all multiple layers. I mean, this is also like a panopticon situation, right? Because everybody's just there and somehow they're probably being... What's a panopticon? Where basically all your actions are are viewed by some other external force, right? And you're just like, you're in the aquarium, right? Oh (laughs) my gosh, you just made me think about how there's a connection between uh, the um, uh, Fawford and the Grey Mauser stories in this. Because in the Fawford and the Grey Mauser stories... Uh, aren't the gods moving Fawford and the Grey Mauser on a board like yeah, a, a chess yep. pieces? <laughs> and like the spiders and the um and the snakes are moving these these figures. So I feel like we've just identified like a theme in Libra that there's this like alien conspiracy that's like manipulating humanity, or or at least that's like you know part part of his imaginary is like how there's external forces shaping our individual choices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I don't think that's the only overlapping theme as well, because also, you know, here we have, as we've mentioned before, these like very traumatized characters who are either kind of escaping their trauma through engagement in the change wars or their and or they are escaping the trauma of both of these things at the recuperation centers. And then we also have Fafford and Grey Mouser 
who have uh, both the trauma of losing Ivrian and um, what's her face? Um, What's the other one's name? Blanking. Blanking. It's been a while. Uh, the, I'm forgetting right now, too. The first love. But yeah. Their first loves. And then they go on this big quest specifically to forget their first loves. And then, like, even, like, later on, like, they're just kind of constantly at the Silver Eel, just, like, trying to, like, not um, um, not be kind of stuck with who they are. Like, they're using adventure and drinking as escapism, which is exactly what the people here are doing as well. Right, right. And that's mm-hmm. actually interesting. And that sort of maybe sets Fafrid apart from like Conan, right? If they both, Fafrid and Malister both have a certain level of doubt and even self-loathing at times, which mm-hmm. not possible for for a Conan or a Robert E. Howard protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just completely. Yeah, and like Fafford gets sober like once or twice too, and like like they they definitely question their own life choices and, and and struggle and try to make changes to it. Where Conan's always just moving straight ahead he's mm-hmm. never looking behind no. mm-hmm. i mean he knows his ultimate fate but he's like okay until that day comes right you know his ultimate fate is to die on the battlefield somewhere but until that day comes right he's just going to keep on fighting against it yeah i thought you meant to be king and i'm like i don't know that that's true but if you're saying to die on a battlefield yeah, yes yeah, absolutely yeah. Yeah. 100%. Like, yeah. conan um i'm gonna do some generalizations he engages with the history of the Hyborian Age. He's, he's like a force of history himself. He like goes out and becomes, well, he does all sorts of things, but he ultimately becomes king, where, you know, he like goes throughout the various kingdoms. Whereas in the Fawford and the Grey Mauser stories, Lankmar is like a, a, the, the eye of the storm. Like there's all this historical stuff happening around, but they kind of, I mean, I know they leave the city and they do other stuff, but but in this in a very similar way that these characters stay in the recuperation station, you know, Fawford and the Grey Mauser stay in Lankmar in this like, almost like, like, is there, is there hewing to the city of a kind of re- refusal to engage with the historical narrative of, of Nuhan in the same, but, mm-hmm. but Conan, on the other hand, he doesn't stay in Samaria. He never stays in Samaria. I mean, his whole character is based upon leaving his, the eye of the storm behind. Right, yeah, right. I don't think we ever have a story in Samaria. No, I don't think so. There's right. pastiches and right. stuff like okay. that. Yeah. Sure, sure. But nothing written by, <laughs> right. by Howard. But you're right, because even like Fafford and the Grey Mouse are, I mean, even when they do leave, um, even when they do leave Linkmar, it's like there's like they're there's they're they're put under a geese and they have to like go to like this island where death is. And even then, like they don't have the control over what they're doing. As you were saying before, they're they are being swept up by history in that moment. Is getting drafted into World War II a geese? So I'm I guess going so. between the different levels. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's 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 you are now being forced to do something that you weren't intending to right. do. And is in even human forces of history. Um it's interesting you mentioned this shelter thing, because it does seem to be um so this here, no one, the end the sort of post appendix and Favre and Grey Master stories have them settling on Rhyme Isle, which is this, basically this Iceland equivalent. So it, a lot of them it's about the search for home that mm-hmm. is never an issue for Conan. Right. But for Fafford and the Great Master, whether or not they admit it and they're always wondering, there is a search for a home of, some, you know, some sense of uh, of safety and uh, which is and these characters searching. But they probably will never find because there is, a, a, for lack of a better word, a spiritual defect that a lot of Fritz Leiber characters all have that will never allow them to actually find home, I think, permanently. Um, mm-hmm. But they but they want it. Right? <laughs> right. It's really sad, but I'm starting to think like that both the Howard and the, and the um, Leiber it's like the conditions for being a human in modernity aren't there. And so like you're always searching for like, like you know, uh, Howard's answer to it through the Conan stories is like, well, I can't be a human in Samaria, so I have to go and search for it. And I will find my full humanity eventually. With the uh, Lieber, um, you know, Fawford and the Grey Mauser, like they're 
they're they're trying to like maintain their humanity in this degraded world, right? Like Lankmar is not a. I know we're not talking about um, Fawford and the Gray Mauser, but like it's a it's a degraded world where they're trying to establish this. You know, like I'm thinking about their house before Ivrel and um, I can't remember her name either. <laughs> uh, but you know that that when when they go and visit the house, um, yeah. it's like this. I don't know what you'd call it. Like I guess the term home applies, but like. Mm. Uh, it's a recuperation station. Right. A refuge. Where with yeah, their- Vlana. Yeah. Vlana. 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 Yeah. Vlana. And of course, and, and why is it the one who I like more, who is more memorable, the, the name I forget. But yes, it's Ivrian and Vlana. Yeah. Ivrian's the one who's really like passive and right. quiet. And yeah. Vlana's, yeah. Like, the- Vlana's the, the, like the voluptuous actress yeah. from the South. Yeah. Right. Who's older. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, of civilizations, right? Ways. Yeah, this idea of refuge is is yeah not to be found, right? Um, yeah, and, and like I yeah. said, so maybe it's a spirit. It's 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 the condition of modernity, but it's also potentially a spiritual defect that you know that they're struggling with. You know, more so in the Mauser's case than maybe in in Fafford's case, which is mm-hmm. that's a kind of interesting irony because Mauser's the clever one, but he actually Fafford is the one who's actually deeper, right? And so, so that's an interesting aspect that they're playing with. Uh, you normally you don't yeah. think of the barbarian as the one who's got like you know deeper sort of spiritual connection. (laughs) Well, and he's the barbarian who seeks civilization rather than the barbarian who rejects civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's because, I mean, I I don't really like the first uh, Fawford, well, it's not the first, but the chronologically first Fawford story. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting how, um, you know, the, uh, you know, Fawford as a barbarian, barbarism is not like this, uh, you know, morally pure state. It's actually like they're backwards. They're, uh, they're like holding, they're, they're, they're like, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, what's the, it's an oppressive society right. and he's, he's becoming more enlightened by fleeing it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not the same as like Howard where like arguably like he celebrates, um, this kind of primitive right. state. You right. Know? And I think that again, probably very much reflects Liber's, um, background as a city kid essentially. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and working, living in Bohemian circles. Right. And knowing all those people who basically let's just for lack of a better word, fled small town America yeah. or whatever to come yeah, to the yeah. big city and reinvent themselves. Totally. And so he's, he's totally and aware Stafford of that. Stafford is one of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so totally. I grew up in a small town in Montana and I spent 16 years living in New York City. Yeah. So I could very you, easily be like the kind of person that like, you know, Liber was trying to. Re- <laughs> sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, trying to escape those awful snow women. That's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Cool. Um. Yeah. So I guess, is there anything from the big time that you thought was like especially inspirational that you think would be fun to steal for a game? I just really like the idea of like manipulating time like mm-hmm. for like a D. De- I know in some supplements there are like, you know, from second edition, I'm thinking there are like chronomancers and, uh, you know, um, spells that stop time. But I'm wondering if like there could be a whole class around like manipulating time, like, you know, slowing things down matrix style, you know, um, mm-hmm. and speeding things up. Um, being able to look into the past, like a whole whole class, uh, you know, structured around the concept of manipulating and get, engaging right. time. It would be really interesting to have, like, you know, maybe like a ninth level spell or whatever that would let you do, like, okay, we, I didn't like how that scene plays out. I get to we get to go back to that scene and play that scene again, right? Yeah, awesome. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that would be very cool. Um, I think that takes obviously a very flexible um, both game master and players to to really work with that. Um, but it would be a lot of fun to do that. 
Also, you know, in Planescape, we've got this like major city that's sitting at the intersection of all these dimensions. And what I like about the big time is that like you've got these like little pocket places that are outside of all the dimensions, but where like they where where the people can intersect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a cool idea. I think it might be fun to kind of throw in this like interdimensional brothel or party place into your D&D world where like you can go you, like you can maybe find some kind of a gate that takes you to this place that has like gates to multiple other places. Um, and that can kind of be your your in to these other dimensions. Mm. Or just a like a D and D campaign too. Like I'm thinking like how you're making me like think about how uh, cosmopolitanism. Uh, there's a there's a comparable chronopolitanism. Like what what's the is there such a thing as chronopolitan? <laughs> like at yeah. the beginning of this show, you talked about society for creative anachronisms. Yeah. Like it, you know people who like will engage in medieval comportment today, right? right. Like. Like, I want to understand people from all different, the whole world. I want to be a citizen of the world. Is there a way of being a chronopolitan? Is there an ethos, is there an ethics of, of, of chronopolitanism? Um, I think that's a really good discussion. And I mean, we're getting close to the end of the show, but I think that's a constant discussion, even as a nature of this project, right? Because a lot of people say, well, this stuff in Appendix N, it's so dated. The values are very dated, you know, for X, Y, Z reason. It's like, is there something that we can take from that still nonetheless? And, you know, there's some people who are very... Uh, reactionary regressor said, no, just this and nothing after this, right? And then there's some people like, oh, no, this is so politically regressive that we have to abandon this entirely. But then is there something in between, right? That, you know. Wow. That, I mean, like, literally, like, think about, like, Lovecraft, right? right? Is it, are you being a chronopolitan when you kind of are hospitable towards a figure like that? Right. Like, in the same way you're being cosmopolitan when you're hospitable towards difference, Right. Let's mm-hmm. say you're from Montana and you meet somebody who is from Syria and you and you welcome them into your home and you and you share their food and stuff. That's being cosmopolitan. Are you being chronopolitan if you um, say you have some really horrible views, person from you know 1932, but I'm still going to read your work and kind of engage with you uh, and not accept your views, but 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 like uh, there's like a kind of hospitality of of openness. I mean, hospitality of openness. That's redundant, but yeah, a, I think it's it an attitude. Be, right. It has to be obviously when there's at least some element of good faith. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the problem, right? Um, and I think uh, Lovecraft, as horrible as he was, there is aspects that would sort of allow for that because we see that he mentored a lot of writers and that he was very warm and, and a, a good critic, a good literary critic. And so that there's all that other stuff. Is it so much that he's completely irredeemable? Um, maybe as a person, if we were dealing with him directly, but as a literary figure, no, I think he's not irredeemable because of all the stuff that sprang out of what he was capable of doing. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, Liber, for example, was literally would have no career if his wife hadn't written a letter to Lovecraft and, and said, hey, my, my husband is you know an aspiring writer. And, you know, could you look at some of his stuff? Right. <laughs> so, so interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting then, stuff to chew on for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Jason, um, I know we we're running out of time. Is there anything that you want to let people know about that you're working on or how they can get in touch with you if um, you want them you know, on social media or otherwise? Yeah. Uh, well, I've been working on this um, amateur um, sword and sorcery magazine called a uh, whetstone and uh, you can um we're on twitter at uh at sorcery ws and um it's a, a free open access a pdf um it just pays as a, a ten dollar honorarium and it's a really short word count 2500 words but the whole idea of the magazine is to kind of you know sword and sorcery fandom is very um long in tooth and a lot of people are getting older and um, I'm getting frustrated with sword and sorcery fandom in general because for lots of reasons. So anyhow, I, I'm trying to like this is like my attempt to 
open it up to, 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 to new blood. Because I think the sword and sorcery uh, genre has a lot of un, um, uh, plumbed potential in, mm-hmm. in, in um, you know, anyhow, Whetstone, amateur magazine of sword and sorcery. And it's specifically for unpublished writers. Mm-hmm. So at, at Sorcery cool. WS on Twitter. Yep. Perfect. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please uh, drop us uh, an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, before our episodes, we get to sit down and chat with some of our patrons at our patron book club. And this week, we were able to sit down with Dan Alexander and Adam Styers. Thank you guys so much for joining us. That was a fun conversation. I'd also like to give a shout out to a handful of our other patrons. So thank you to Noah Green, Gabriel Laycock, Eric Johnson, David Willems, Brandon Cruz, William Suter, and Matt Richards. We really appreciate your support. Our next episode, episode 89, will be on Jack Vance's The Killing Machine, and episode 90 will be on Fletcher Pratt's Invaders from Rigel. So, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This is awesome. I I feel my my head has expanded with (laughs) untapped vistas. (laughs) (laughs) Chronopolitanism. There we go. That's 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 the the word. That's the new word. All right. We are (laughs) chronopolitan studies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.